Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of her new book, Who Do Justice Magic, also Damien Keller, binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Erica M. Elliott, and she has written a book called Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo people. Thank you for coming on today. It's a pleasure, Gary. So how did you end up living among the Navajo? That's a whole story. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. We so, got some time. <laughs> okay, good. So when I graduated from college, I got a degree in education. And I looked at the trade journals and all the different positions didn't look that interesting to me. But one jumped right out at me. It was at a boarding school. I'd be a fourth grade teacher at a boarding school in a remote area of the Southwest, near Canyon de Chez, one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I thought, this is the place for me. And I had no idea why I wanted to do it. It was just an inner compass said, this is where you have to go. And everybody thought I was crazy. You know, why didn't I stay on the East Coast and have a nice, like a prep school or something? Mm -hmm. And um, so, but I, I, when they said, why? And I said, I can't explain it. It's one of those internal things that uh, telling me to do this, but even though it defies logic. Well, I never heard back from Washington, D.C. with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so I, I assumed they didn't need me. They found somebody else. So I decided to take a year off to travel, visit my relatives in Switzerland and the rest of Europe. And when I came back a year later, I visited my sister in California, and there was a letter from Washington, D.C. It, it had been sent... Um, it had been sent um, a month after I went on my travels, and it had been forwarded from one place to another and never reached me until I met up with the letter at my sister's a year later. Hmm. And it said, we want you. <laughs> and and I, I thought, well, they won't want me now. I mean, this is a year later. I'm sure they want somebody. <laughs> and then a little voice said, call them up. And... And uh, so I called them up and they said, come out right now. It, the school year had already begun. And I said, you mean you don't have anybody? No, nobody wanted a job. <laughs> and so, and, and so uh, I said, okay. And so my sister said, that's a really bad sign that they couldn't get anybody to fill that position. <laughs> and are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yes, I don't know why. I don't know why. So she lent me the money to buy an old rickety van. And 
and I borrowed her clothes till I made enough money to <clears throat> buy some nice, nice outfits. And I <clears throat> drove across the West and it was so spectacular, such huge skies <clears throat> and beautiful rock formations. I, I was in awe. But when I came to the place where I was supposed to teach, it looked really ugly. I mean, it, everything was like different shades of brown desert and and it was a really rundown town there's one road through it one junk food grocery store that just sold junk food <laughs> one gas station and one restaurant and that's it and the school looked really tumbled down and i thought oh my god and it, it looked like it was stuck in the 50s i mean people mm -hmm. were driving pickup trucks with cowboy hats and cowboy boots and you hear Waylon Jennings coming out of the window. She's a good hearted woman in love with her good time and man. She loves him <laughs> in spite of his wicked ways, which she don't understand. I, oh my God, what, what have I done? And so then I met the principal. He was a black man from the South and he was very suspicious of me because I look like a hippie. And he said, you know, we don't like hippies around here. And I said, I'm not a hippie. I, I, I have my sister's borrowed clothes, you know, the mini skirt and stuff like that, and sandals. And I said, as soon as I get a paycheck, I, I will buy regular clothes. I'm not a hippie. I'm just unusual. I'm just unusual. And so I'm unconventional. And so I, I then he he felt okay about me. that And... Um, then he introduced me to the teachers. They were all white and they're all, quote, old. That meant I, I was 23, so old meant in their late 50s. Mm -hmm. That's not old to me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they all looked really bored and they asked me why a young person like me would ever want to come there. I, I thought, geez, wow, maybe I made a mistake. And they had nothing nice to say about the Navajo people. And they said the kids couldn't learn and um, they weren't friendly. And it was all very negative. Uh -huh. And they were waiting to get their government paycheck so they could retire and go back to wherever they came from, Florida or wherever. And, and so um, the next day, they wanted me to start right away. And I had a teacher aide called Donna Scott, who, who ha had a very famous father, Carl Gorman, who was a major code talker in World War II. And the code talkers were the Navajo yeah. servicemen. And it, it was the only code that was never broken by the German and Japanese because it was simply their language and their language is impossible. It wasn't a code. It was them speaking their language, for example, but they used it colorfully, like for a, um, a jet, they'd call it an eagle and stuff like that. But really it wasn't a code. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so I found out pretty soon why that code was never broken, that it is like, I'm a linguist, so I speak multiple languages, but I had never 
run into a language like this, never. And the reason why I was a linguist is because my father's work, we moved, lived in many different countries. So I already knew German, French, Italian, and so forth. But Navajo was like nothing I'd ever encountered before. And everybody sounded like they're mad at each other. In fact, I thought everybody was angry because it's a guttural language. Uh -huh. They make clicking sounds and like that. And it's a chonk And, and, but they, they weren't mad. They were just talking friendly uh, talk, but it sounded angry <laughs> to, to my untrained ears. And Donna Scott, my teacher aide, knew very well the white world because she was raised on military bases and she was traditional meaning she dressed like a traditional Navajo and spoke her language fluently. So, so she was fluent in both worlds, which is perfect for me, so she could help me understand Navajo culture. And so my first day in the class, nobody looked at me. Nobody talked to me. I made a fool out of myself in front of the class because I, I didn't know what was going on. And it was only later I discovered they don't look, didn't look at me because they're shy and they're showing respect. And because looking in the eye when you don't know the person is considered very aggressive in their culture. Hmm. And, and um, I also found out later they didn't talk to me because here they were in the fourth grade and they didn't speak English. And I thought, how? how is that possible reaching the fourth grade and not speaking English? Well, I found out why that was. It was because the teachers didn't really like the students and the students knew that. And the curriculum was Dick and Jane books, which the kids couldn't relate to at all. These were very traditional Navajo children living in the middle of nowhere. That's why they had to have a boarding school. And um, so anyway, I, it was very frustrating. And after a few days, I called my father and I said, I made a big mistake coming here. I don't, it's ugly. I don't like it. The people don't talk to me. I, I don't think they like me. Um, I, I don't understand the culture. I, I didn't get any kind of orientation to the place. And so I, I don't really know what's going on here. And my kids can't speak English. So I, I want to come home and look for a job back east. And he said, you've only been there a week. You can't really understand a people or a culture or their land in a week. Why don't you stay there three months and then make up your mind? And then if you're unhappy, you, you come back and look for a job around here. So I said, okay, but knowing in my mind that I would go home in three months, there's no way that I was going to stay here longer than that. So the next day, the teacher aide, Donna Scott, took me aside and said, you're not like the other teachers. You really want, you're really trying hard and I can see how frustrated you are and you really want to make contact with the students. So I'm going to make a suggestion that might change everything for you. I'm going to teach you just a few, a, 
few sentences in Navajo and you, you will say it to the class in the next day. And so back in those days, there was no dictionary or anything. And there, there was no way to write on a blackboard some of those sounds because we didn't have those sounds in English. So I had to listen to her saying these few sentences over and over and over and over again. So I stayed up all night standing in front of a mirror trying to make these bizarre sounds. And finally, I think I got it. So the next morning, I went into the classroom and I, I said in Navajo, good morning, my children. Donna had told me that in Navajo culture, when you use a relationship term, it shows affection. These weren't my children, but if you say my children, it means you're expressing kindness to mm -hmm. them. And, and that's why they say my brother, uh, my, my child and stuff, even though there's no relationship there. And so I said in Navajo, good morning, my children. My name is Miss Elliot. What's your name and where do you come from? I said, and when I said that, everybody looked up for the first time and, and looked right at me, right in the eyes, and were stunned. And then all of a sudden, a girl put her hand over her mouth and started giggling. And then the whole class started laughing. And that was the beginning of the most profound love affair between me and the students. Everything changed. Everything changed. So right after that experience, they were all excited and they're talking among themselves. And the bravest, least shy boy in the class who knew, knew the most English, which wasn't much, came up to my desk and he couldn't say Miss Elliot. That that was too hard. So so he called me Elliot. They, they like E L T. Elliot. <clears throat> so he said, Elliot, take me home. I said, What? And I looked at Donna Scott. I said, What did he say? She said he wants you to take him home. And, and I said to Billy, You want me to take you home? And he said in Navajo, oh, which means yes. And then I, I was really confused. So I said, you mean check you out of the boarding school? Oh, and I turned to Donna, is that allowed? She said, yes, but nobody does it. But you could do it. I said to Billy Begay, I said, you mean like this weekend? He said, oh, I said, okay. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I picked, it, picked him up, did all the paperwork, drove way deep into the most beautiful place I'd ever seen in my life, Canyon de Chez. It was magnificent and sort of hidden. I, m most people didn't, white people didn't know about it. And um, <clears throat> we, I met his whole family. They didn't speak any English at all but they treated me with incredible kindness. And even though they were so poor, they offered me everything. Like they wanted me to spend the night, so they gave up their, their 
bed and slept on sheepskin. I mean, they, they just were so incredibly kind. It breaks all stereotypes. And they shared their junky food with me. It's junky because they couldn't, there wasn't anything, uh, any other place to buy healthier food. Mm -hmm. So it was white bread, peanut butter sandwiches and Coke. And so, you know, I'm not going to turn it down. That, that, that'd be incredibly rude. And they were being generous with me and um, shared everything with me. And then all the brothers got their horses and invited me to join them. They rode bareback. They raced through the canyon. It, it was so thrilling. And I was holding on for dear, dear life. <laughs> and... <clears throat> I think they were testing me out, actually, to see, <laughs> to see what kind of white girl I was. And so I had an incredible weekend. They they completely embraced me and told me to come back and participate in some of their ceremonies where white people weren't allowed. And I, I, I mean, the hospitality was unreal. And when I, when I went back, on Sunday, by Monday, the whole school had heard about my adventures with Billy Begay. And so then I had a brainstorm. Okay, they're not learning English, probably because they know the teachers don't like them, number one. Number two, they're learning Dick and Jane books, which mean nothing to them. And so I thought, I'm going to create our own curriculum by using their experiences. They wanted desperately now for me to learn about their lives. They saw how much I cared about them and it lit them up. They became on fire. They wanted me to know about all their sheep and goats and how they butcher and their grandmother and the werewolves and skinwalkers and their belief systems. And so they learned English so fast unbelievable because they they wanted me to know about them because they saw that I cared and so that first day when we're back when I made that decision we're gonna make our own curriculum and we're gonna start right now with with what they know and they know I went to Billy Begay's Hogan and spent the weekend so I asked them to draw a picture of what they imagined the weekend was like. And they're almost all really good artists, especially the boys. They were incredibly good. And I asked them to write two sentences below the picture. Most of them couldn't do it, but I asked them to try. And so I, I wrote one picture I'll never forget. It was done by one of the boys. <clears throat> and it was down in the Arroyo in the canyon and there is this horse that was racing along and on the horse's back was a white woman who was clinging to the mane for dear life with her ponytail straight out <laughs> and under the picture was written my teacher t-e-e-c-h-i-r and that was the beginning of a whole transformation so what happened is so unbelievable that I I documented it all 
in my diary so I'd never forget. And also I cut out a newspaper clipping about what I'm about to tell you because it's mm -hmm. so hard to believe. So here I enter the class when the year's already begun, it's late September, and they, they really don't speak English. I mean, just like a few words. And by the end of the year, <laughs> three of them won a regional speech contest. And I said to myself, this is the power of love. They knew that I cared about them. They knew I thought they were smart and they wanted desperately for me to know about them because they saw how much I cared. So I learned a huge life lesson about compassion, empathy, looking at the world through another's shoes. So when I became a medical doctor, years and years later, I, I implemented what I learned from being with the Navajo people. And I saw things that white people never see. I saw miracles happen in ceremonies. Um, if you want me to tell you about any of those miracles, Absolutely. I can do it. Okay. Okay. I'll tell you. Okay. So I met this young man at the only restaurant in town. I was having lunch. And he had gotten a scholarship for uh, going to college in the Midwest. And he just graduated and he was terribly homesick for the reservation. And so he, he, he had learned not to be shy because he had been around so many white people. So he actually asked if he could sit at my table. And we started talking and he said, you know, I've heard all about you. And I've heard that you're you're learning the Navajo language and that you're you're taking a deep dive into the culture. And I I, I want to take you to meet my family. Not to, I don't I'm not meaning I want you to be my girlfriend. I want you to be part of my family. I think you'd really like them. And he spoke perfect English. And so um, they lived on Black Mesa and in a beautiful part of the reservation. And when I was there, they told me they wanted to adopt me. Not, I don't, <laughs> I don't mean literally. And they, uh, they gave me a Navajo name, which is Navajo woman with red skin. They called me a red skin because I was sunburned all the time. <laughs> so it, I'm a white woman called red skin. And so, <laughs> And so anyway, um, so, so th then once they felt they could trust me, they told me they belonged to the Native American church, which is the peyote church, which is use plant medicine to worship, mm -hmm. not for rec. This is not recreational. In fact, they completely condemn that use of peyote, completely condemn it. They said it's a spiritual healing plant medicine and not to be abused. And, and in that era, it was legal. The government said it's legal for Native Americans to go and harvest the peyote and have ceremonies, but white people could not participate back then. So they invited me to participate. <laughs> and um, they said I could not wear white man's clothes. 
So they dressed me completely like a traditional Navajo with the, they did my hair in the Navajo knot with the yarn around it and the concha belt and all the jewelry. I mean, I looked like I was ready to go to a Navajo prom. <laughs> and so, and so when we're in there, the, it's all night singing and praying and they call it the medicine. And the medicine comes around in three forms, the button and the powder and a tea. And my Navajo mother sat next to me and was whispering to me, explaining everything. And she said that, um, that I might vomit from, from the peyote. And she said that that's okay. I can just walk around and go outside and throw up. And she said, it's the evil coming out. And so when I, I started ready to heave, I, I didn't want people to know I was evil. So I kind of swallowed. <laughs> I, I did everything mind control to keep from vomiting. And um, it probably would have been good if I had vomited, but I, I suppressed it. And at one point, um, when they were smoking the sacred tobacco, they got the herbs on San Francisco Peaks in Arizona, which is now a ski area. But it was a sacred area where they got gathered herbs. And so they rolled it into homemade like cigarettes, and they use it for prayer. So you inhale, exhale, and then you say a prayer, and then you pass it on. So my grand, my Navajo mother did that, and then she, she, she said, pass it on, because she knew I didn't speak Navajo, but I had just been there a month. She said, just pass it on, but I didn't pass it on. And I don't know what possessed me. I think I was in such an altered state, so completely altered, mm -hmm. that I did the same thing, and I prayed in Navajo. And you have to know that I could only say a few things, like how many sheep do you have, and where, where do you live, and stuff like that. Not much of anything. But I was praying in Navajo, and I thought to myself, I'm praying in Navajo. That's impossible. I must be so this I must be so high on on the plant medicine. This is probably just a giant hallucination, but it feels so real. It feels so real. It feels more real than real life. But and then and then I I finished and passed it on. And then the same thing with the water drum. It, it's a drum filled with water so mm -hmm. it makes it makes a very ethereal sound, like the heartbeat of life or something. And when you pound on it, you sing a, a Navajo prayer song. And the, my Navajo mother did the same thing. After she sang and pounded, drummed, she said, pass it on. And I didn't pass it on. I held it between my legs and I beat on it and I started singing a song I never heard in my life. Hey, nay, young, hey, nay, hey. And I thought, oh my God, where did, oh my God, this is just a dream. I'm, I'm in this dream. This can't be real. It's impossible. 
And so anyway, by the time morning came, we all filed out and we touched our foreheads to the earth and fanned ourselves with the eagle feather fan. And then we filed into the Cinderblock's house next door where some women had been up all night preparing the breakfast. So we sat on a sheet on the floor and had mutton stew and fry bread and canned peaches and so forth. And the, the, the road man, that means the medicine man for the peyote ceremonies, they call them road man, he started talking to me nonstop in Navajo. By this time, the peyote had worn off. And I, I didn't know what in the world he was talking about. And then I noticed that everybody was looking at me and they were all smiling. I, I felt very uncomfortable. And, and then I looked back at the road man and he was looking right into my eyes and saying something. And I, I said in English, very embarrassed, I said, you know, I, I'm really sorry, but I, 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 don't, I don't speak Navajo. And everybody burst out laughing. And he said, you sure talked up a storm last night. And I thought, oh my God, this really happened. This, this really happened. So it, it, there was one miracle after another. And um, all sorts of instant healings and stuff. And I can't explain it. You know, I, I try to find an explanation. But I can't unless, you know, you use sort of the new quantum physics or something to say that right. all the information is out there. And I guess under the peyote, you let go of all these constructs, these illusions and these limitations and logic. So you can access all sorts of, of things. That That's the way a physicist... Uh, explained it to me because mm -hmm. I, I, I had no explanation for it and but I documented everything in my diary that's why writing the book the book by the way is called medicine and miracles in the high desert my life among the Navajo people and um, so you, I, you can get it on Amazon but um, so I so when it came time to write the book, it was pretty easy because I had documented everything in my diary because it was so outrageous. Some of the things that I was experiencing, things that white people will never have experienced. So I thought, you know, someday if I don't document this, I'm going to, God forbid, forget or else think it never really happened because it's so beyond our consensus reality. It's so different from what people believe is possible and not possible. And Gary, if you want me to tell you one healing story yes. about what happened to me, you want to hear that? Yeah. Okay. So this happened to me. And, um, so <clears throat> I had been teaching for a while and I noticed that I had this hard lump here. I was not a doctor then. So I, I had no idea what it was. I, I knew that lymph nodes are here, but this one, this was hard as a rock and it was growing. And I knew on some level that wasn't good, but like my patients now, they think, oh, well, I'll just wait it out and it'll go away because 
and because they're scared. Mm -hmm. and so I took the same approach. I'm just going to wait and hope this goes away. And it didn't go away. It got bigger and bigger. It got so big that one of the girls in my class said, Miss Elliot, they could finally say my name by then. Miss Elliot, you have a goiter. That, that wasn't true. I, goiters are when the whole thyroid's inflamed is from not having enough iodine. And back then, they didn't have iodized salt. And so you'd see goiters, people with large inflamed thyroids. So my, mine wasn't that. Mine was a nodule above, below, sorry, below my jaw. And so I went to, I went to my uh, teacher aide and she said, um, I know a medicine man who can help make that go away. And so um, she said, this is how you find him. <laughs> this is so typical Navajo from those days. You go down the Arroyo, there's no road, what I'm talking about. You go down the arroyo and at the sagebrush, you turn right and then you'll find three pinyons in a row. You turn left and then you go 200 feet straight and then you go, uh, there's a ledge and then you get out and walk down <laughs> and there's the medicine man. Oh my God, I got so lost, Gary. I so lost. And I finally found him and to my dismay, he, he looked at it and he said that this wasn't his specialty. I thought, oh no. So he said, no, don't worry. He said, he said, I know a Hopi medicine man on the Hopi on the Mesa where there's Hopi villages and he can help you. So I, it took me all day to find him, the medicine man. He was out herding sheep and he said the same thing after he examined it. He said, that's, it's not my specialty. I'm so sorry. So I was so disheartened. So then I thought, oh, I'm gonna have to go to a regular doctor. And like my patients, they're scared of doctors. They're not scared of me, but you know, more mainstream by the book kind of doctors. And um, so yeah, I was 23 and really scared. And I drove an hour to the closest clinic, which is a charity, little charity hospital. And it's, it was very intimidating for me. It was smelled like disinfectant and everybody was in white, crisp white, and nobody was friendly. So, so an intern, internist rather, evaluated me and he said, this looks like lymphoma. I, I, I didn't know anything about medicine. I didn't know what that word meant, but uh, he, he explained it's a kind of cancer and we're going to have to biopsy it and we'll set that up. So you just stay here and we'll, we'll do that. So I said, okay. And then I freaked out and I left. <laughs> I escaped the hospital and I drove back and I told my Navajo family and they said, you know, you don't need to worry. We're going to take care of that. I thought, oh, sure, right. And we're going to have a ceremony for you, but we can't afford it all by ourselves. So we're going to join in with another family who has a sick baby and we'll pay half the cost and they'll pay half the cost. Because for these people who are really poor, it's terribly expensive. 
They have to butcher one of their sheep to feed everybody. So so that that's a huge sacrifice, mm-hmm. a, a sheep. And and then they have to pay the roadman, the, the medicine man, the roadman. And so for them, it's it's ter- it's a huge gift that gave me huge. And and so um, during the ceremony, I was mostly concentrated on the baby. I, I was so focused on the baby and watching the baby calm down, stop crying, and the copper color in the cheeks from the fever started turning to a normal brown color. And the baby started making eye contact with the mom and gurgling. I, I, I thought, wow, this is miraculous, jeez. And then I, I had a, a very weird experience. This isn't the, the main part of the story, it's just a little digression. I looked on my finger while, while I was on the peyote and I had a ring on my, for real, on my finger, but, but in my altered state, it looked like a wedding ring. And I got very confused for a minute and I thought, am I married? I didn't, I didn't remember being married. And so, and so then this was just my thought. I didn't say anything out loud, but all the grown-ups started laughing. And I, I thought to myself, my God, how, can they read my thoughts? Wow, this is crazy, man. And then I thought, I can't tell anybody about this because nobody's going to ever believe me. And that was my thought. And the roadman looked right at me and said out loud, no, they won't believe you. You don't have to talk about it. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> this, this is unbelievable. So anyway, back to the main story. So I completely forgot that this half the ceremony was about me. I completely forgot it. I was just so focused on praying for the baby and everything. So then morning came and we filed out and we did our little ritual with touching the earth to our forehead our forehead to the earth and blessing ourselves with the eagle feather fans and then going in for the breakfast again on on the floor on a sheet and and everybody stared at me and i didn't know why they were staring at me and the roadman was staring at me and all the people sitting in a circle on the floor were staring at me and I thought I wonder why they're staring at me and then my hand flew up under my jaw and the mass had disappeared oh, wow. and to this to this day 50 years later sometimes I sort of absent-mindedly touched this because for years afterwards I kept feeling is it going to come back I couldn't believe it was gone <laughs> and so that's that's um, just one of many miraculous things that I witnessed Gary do you have any questions about this or comments I'm just kind of curious like as a, as a doctor yourself like how do you think that works <laughs> you know, I can't tell you through logic because our reality system doesn't include 
what happened. So I would have to draw on some other system that's beyond consensus reality to explain it. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so for the time being, I just say, I can't explain it. I just know that it happened. I could make up a story to satisfy people who need to have a reason, but it would be made up. And mm -hmm. the truth is, I don't know. Wow. But, yeah. Hmm. And, and as a doctor, have you ever recommended like these type of treatments for for people rather than yeah. having to go under the knife? Uh, yes, but um, the thing is, some people are so um, fixed in in their belief of way reality is. It, it, it doesn't always work for them. Right. And uh, yeah, so you have to be able and willing to suspend your view of the way things are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. But I, I have seen some amazing things. I had one person who is chemically sensitive so badly she could barely live in the world. And back then i knew quite a few medicine men they're all dead now but uh when when i was a young doctor and so this woman uh they didn't even have a name in navajo for what she had this is a white woman and who was injured by pesticides and mold and her life was just a wreck she she was sensitive to everything she was so miserable and so they um they called it um they said she needs a windway ceremony that's the closest they could get because they they haven't had that experience with chemical sensitivities and severe allergies that that we have they and if they if they have experienced that um it, it's they don't know really what it is but this one had a name a white person's name but they didn't know a Navajo word for it. And so they called it windway, meaning a bad wind. And, mm -hmm. um, and so they said she would need four ceremonies with four different medicine men because they all, they specialize in certain aspects. And in the last ceremony, they buried her with, with um, a tube that went outside that she could breathe. They buried her overnight and did praying and chanting and everything. These were intense ceremonies. They, they were really committed to trying to help her. And, and after the fourth ceremony, she was healed. <laughs> she mm. was healed. But it doesn't always work that way. So um, you don't know what to expect, really. Interesting. Wow. Um, so, so how long did you stay there with the Navajos and how much uh, did you, did you get an opportunity to learn any of their medicine? Well, I didn't train as a medicine woman. Uh -huh. that, that's a long, lifelong training that they, they learn that from the time they're designated as medicine men or women from a young age and then years of training. So, um, I learned about their herbs and things like that, but not being a medicine man or a woman. And um, 
I was there for two years, and and then I I became a sheep herder with a family that spoke no English because I wanted to really perfect my Navajo so I could be totally fluent. Right. And they were an old couple. And they had they were considered really wealthy by Navajo standards, and wealth is how many sheep and goats you have and how much jewelry. And so they were extremely wealthy. They had 595 sheep and goats. And they taught me how to butcher and to castrate and to shear the sheep and to um, uh, card the wool and spin it and get the herbs to dye it. And and I, I wove many rugs there with a stand-up loom which mm-hmm. is attached to a tree and um i uh, it was incredible i had my horse and and then um i was out herding sheep that was for three months and then from there um i i, I got really excited about knowing more about indigenous people in other parts of the world so i i said a very sad goodbye to to all my friends and it, it was really sad because they had so accepted me into their lives that they never asked me about my life so it's almost like I had no life until I came with the Navos because when I said I was leaving they were so shocked and said where are you going like the old couple I heard it sheep he said in Navajo where are you going and I said, to see my, my mother and father. And they said, but this is your home. And I said, no, but I have another home near the Great Water. They, they didn't know New England and stuff. Near the Great Water where the sun comes up. And they, they were just silent. They were speechless. Like, you know, because they had totally accepted me into their world. So yeah. I, I, I felt horrible doing this, but I knew that if I didn't leave now, I would end up marrying their son, who, who is twice my age, but he, he had pursued me the whole time, and Marshall, and he was in the tribal council in their government, and I would end up with six kids and be there the rest of my life, and I knew that my life had a purpose, and I, it took me years to figure out the purpose was a medical doctor because this journey to purpose was um, all about collecting data about what what make brings me joy, what what is meaningful. So I learned so much about being with the Navos that whatever my purpose is, it has to include love and empathy. Whatever I did, whether it's baking bread or being a doctor or whatever, it had to include love kindness compassion and empathy and um i realized how much i love to teach i love to empower people as a doctor and as a school teacher empower those kids so they can see how absolutely intelligent and beautiful they are and that's what i do with my patients i teach them about so they won't be afraid of their body and afraid of their symptoms i i educate them i empower them and that gives me huge, huge satisfaction. So this whole journey to purpose, it was a 10-year journey trying to find my purpose. 
I was gathering data along the way. And so the next place I went to was South America. I only talk about it briefly in the book because it's mostly about Navajo people. Mm-hmm. But I, I joined the Peace Corps and I worked with indigenous people high up in the Andes Mountains at 12,000 feet. And they, they, they didn't speak much Spanish. I spoke Spanish fluently. And uh, I had to learn their language, Quechua. I never learned it very well. And um, and I was assigned to do bilingual, uh, bicultural materials to help the Indian kids learn Spanish so they could get jobs. And why the Peace Corps assigned me to that is when I was with the Navajo people teaching fourth grade, by year two, um, the principal had become so much my ally, he let me do things that he'd never let the other teachers do. Like, again, not use any of the curriculum they had set up, to, de- but let me develop my own curriculum. <clears throat> he, he, he's totally behind me. And, and he called up the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington and said, we have this white girl here who speaks Navajo and is doing bilingual, bicultural education in the fourth grade class. And it was at a time when this is a brand new concept, bilingual education, totally brand new. And so they designated my classroom as one of the pilot programs uh, to observe. And the BBC actually came out, it was a French crew working for the BBC, and filmed for days our classroom and interviewed me and the students and the students loved it and sang songs and have those songs for them, talked about their traditions and stuff, showed them some of their drawings and writings and stuff. So so it was a very impressive year. I mean, it got a lot of press and stuff like that because nobody taught like that in those days. And and so when so when I got the job as a Peace Corps, they wanted me to do the same thing up high in the Andes, well, it, it was a bit different. <laughs> I didn't go so deeply into the culture as I did with the Navajos because uh-huh. I still felt so bad about them so embracing me into their lives and then leaving felt like a, a deception. And so I never, I always said to every Indian there, indigenous Quechua speaking person, I said, I'm only here for two years. So they wouldn't. Uh, feel like I had deceived them or something. And so, so I, I, I did get into their culture, but not as deeply as with the Navajos. And I also, when I was there, I joined an all-male climbing club in Quito. I'd go once a month to get my paycheck, $120 a month from the Peace Corps office. And <clears throat> I went into the climbing club of the Polytechnical Institute, which is like the MIT of, of, of Ecuador. And I convinced them to take me on, even though I was a woman, and teach me how to climb these huge volcanoes. And I mean, gigantic. And I ended up becoming an expert mountaineer. And even a peak was named after me as part of a bigger <laughs> mountain. It had never been climbed before. And because the the climbing guys so adopted me and taught me everything they know. So I became very accomplished, snow and ice climber, 
rock climber, mountaineer. And I, I was the first American woman to climb Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere at 23,000 feet. I wasn't the first woman. I was the first American woman. It was first climbed by a French woman in 1940. And there was, I was the seventh woman, but the first American. And, hmm. um, and then I, I led an, later back in the States an all-women's expedition to the top of Mount McKinley after my first year of medical school. But anyway, <clears throat> so uh, again, I was gathering data and they would bring me their sick babies, these <clears throat> Quechua speaking descendants of the Inca people. <clears throat> and they'd ask me to heal their babies. And <clears throat> I was not a doctor. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I didn't really know what to do. The first time there were three mothers with sick babies and the babies were obviously sick they they were had that copper color and they were full of mucus and crying and uh miserable and so i um i they begged me and they they called me patrona which i hated that means boss and i said please <laughs> call, call me my name please but they were so I was the only white person who had ever been there except for the priest from Spain. And so they, they treated me like I was some kind of god. And I I didn't like that at all. It's just, it, it didn't feel good, but it was hard to train them not to do that. And so that's why they brought their babies to me. <clears throat> and I said, I'm not a doctor. And that didn't, that didn't sway them at all. They just kept standing there. <clears throat> And so I went into my first aid kit given to me by the Peace Corps. I didn't know what else to do. I took out an aspirin and crushed it. And I put a tiny bit of aspirin in each baby's mouth, like, like maybe four grains or something, which is nothing. And then they didn't speak much Spanish, but the priest had made them Catholics, even though they didn't really understand all that. But so what I did is I did something deceptive, but I, I was just trying so badly to help. I made the sign of a cross. I wasn't Catholic. I made the sign of a cross, and I said a prayer that I made up in Spanish. And then they were very satisfied. And I, I, felt, I said, please, God, forgive me. You know, I, I was pretending, and I didn't really, you know, I was just trying really hard to help these people. And, you know, I, I, I hoped I wouldn't go to hell for doing that. But anyway, so the next day, the three mothers came back with no babies, and they had three guinea pigs skewered that were roasted. And guinea pig, they're so poor that they only eat their guinea pigs for a marriage or a huge ceremony or something. So this was huge. And I mean, it made me sick looking at them. They looked like rats. <laughs> and, and so I, I didn't know what I was going to do because the Peace Corps said you never refuse the food. That's a huge insult in, in this culture. And so I thought, oh, my God. So, so I, 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 took, I took them. And, and the mother said in broken Spanish, they barely spoke Spanish, they, they mixed Quechua with Spanish. They said, Wow, wow's curitas todos. 
the babies are all cured and and they thanked me profusely and then they gave me the guinea pigs roasted guinea pigs and walked away and I, I was dumbstruck I said how what just happened how can they be well from aspirin and a phony prayer and the sign of the cross what what's going on here what is going on here and I didn't know the word placebo mm -hmm. I never heard of that word but I said some something happened and, and it's not really about me well the only thing about me is that I had such a strong intention to be of help I, so strong that I was willing to do anything even pretend I was Catholic anything to help but I never thought it would really work and I, so I, I was so confused and 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 the mothers were, were sure they were better so I, I, I just and then later when I was in medical school and learned about placebo and all that stuff then it totally made sense but what I did learn again the 10-year journey to, to find that being a doctor was my true purpose in life I realized how thrilling it is to see people get well. Mm -hmm. So I knew what, whatever I did it had to include those things that I already mentioned and feeling better. So, you know, so that, that was a big revelation. It, I, it had to involve people feeling better about themselves, about feeling better in their body or, or whatever. And, um, so, so that's that's that story. Do you have any other questions? <laughs> what you Gary? do with the, what you do with the guinea pigs? <laughs> oh my god! I gagged them. I gagged them down because I didn't want to offend. I I actually there there was these scraggly dogs. I, I confess, I I gave one of them to the dog. They, if they saw me do that, that would be so awful. That would be so terrible because that would be a slap in the face because they they don't have money they make 19 cents a day from from the landlord whose land they're they're working on and so their guinea pigs are like treasures for them they basically just eat barley potatoes onions leeks um, quinoa whatever they grow around there and so Meat is a huge treat. I mean, they do have sheep and goats, but they, they don't eat them. They sell them at the market because they, they, they're too poor to eat their own um, animals, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They get more money selling selling their sheep and goats. Hmm. Did you see any similarities between their culture and healing methods and what you saw with the Navajo? No, I, I saw some similarities like the shyness and the respectfulness and so forth. I saw that. But the healing ceremonies, they um, they had lost a lot of that tradition, sadly. Um, but, um, yeah, and alcohol had uh, become a problem throughout the indigenous communities too i mean they had their ceremonies but they would all the men would end up drunk and mm -hmm. so it, it 
Yeah, alcohol can really be destructive. Oh, yeah. To culture. And then um, after that, where did you go? So <laughs> after that, um, I when I returned to the States, I had terrible culture shock. You know, most people have culture shock when they leave America and go live in some foreign culture. And the Peace Corps, you know, helped us with that. But they didn't tell us that for some of us coming back would be a much bigger shock. I mean, I it took me a year to adjust to being back in America because it seemed so sterile to me, so wasteful. Um, people's values seemed so materialistic and um, so less like clan oriented, like uh, the Navajo people, the clan is everything. Like when you meet a Navajo or, or the indigenous people in the Andes, you, you don't say, uh, I'm from Chicago and I, I work in the auto plant. You, you don't talk like that. You introduce yourself as the, <clears throat> uh, with, with your clan um, lineage on both the maternal and paternal, so they can place you because they're very family clan oriented. And you say what part of the land you're from. And um, so it's, it's really different. So, so coming back to the States, yeah, it seemed incredibly materialistic, incredibly lonely and isolating because everybody was in their perfect little house with their lawn and fence. And, um, and, and it, it seemed like so wasteful, so unappreciating nature and I, I, I just, I thought, wow, where do I belong here? How, how, what am I going to do? And um, my father one time found me crying on the floor in the living room because I was lost, didn't know where to turn, where, 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 what my purpose was. I was completely lost. And he told me that I should go to medical school. I said, Oh no, I can't do that. It, you know, I came from actually a lineage of doctors on the Swiss side. My grandfather was a doctor, my mother's brother, and he said it's in your DNA. And I said, no, I, I can't be a doctor because you have to be a genius to be a doctor. He said, where'd you get that idea? And I said, because Uncle Ernst, my mother's brother, who was the only doctor I knew, was a true genius. And mm -hmm. so I had the mistaken belief that you had to be just off the chart genius to be a doctor. And so I, I kept saying to my father, no, I can't do that. I, he, he said, what, what's with you? Of course you're smart enough. You're really smart. I said, no, I'm, not, I'm nothing like Uncle Ernst. Un Uncle Ernst is, is, he's so far ahead of, of everything and stuff. And um, so, so anyway, around that time, I got an invitation from my college. They had heard in the alumnus, alumni news that I had become an accomplished mountaineer, wilderness guide, and so forth. And they asked if I would lead 
a wilderness course for freshman orientation in the Smoky Mountains for those that wanted it. So I said, okay, okay, and I loved it. So I thought, well, maybe my purpose is to um, lead groups in the wilderness for a transformative experience because nature, being in nature in the middle of nowhere and learning how to survive is, is very gratifying and teaches many lessons. And um, so, so I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And then a very famous guy in that world of experiential, it's called experiential education, invited me to join his master's program in experiential education in Boulder, Colorado. So I thought, okay, I guess this is my path in life. I'm, I'm going to be um, a wilderness uh, transformative uh, wilderness school where people come, maybe juvenile delinquents, and their life is transformed. So, so I did, and I enjoyed it. And then I got invited to teach for Outward Bound, and that was really rewarding. I mean, I, I saw people really change. I had, um, I taught three summers and I had kids ranging in age from 16 to an MIT professor who, who was 60, who had retired and didn't know uh, what the next stage of his life would be and wanted to do Outward Bound to get some perspective. And th this is on my first course that I ever taught was a 16-year-old juvenile delinquent, and then the professor, and then seven other students. There are nine students, and it was a 23-day course. And the juvenile delinquent, I forgot his name, but he, he, he was tough. He was in trouble all the time. He destroyed property. And the judge gave him a choice. <laughs> he said he he could go to jail or he could take an hour bound course. <laughs> and so he decided to take an hour bound course. And when he saw it was a woman teaching, he, he said right out loud how disappointed he was because it's going to be too easy. <laughs> by, the, <laughs> by the second day, he could barely stand up and he said it was too hard. And, um, <laughs> and so anyway, but here, here's some magical things happened to these students. They really grew up quickly because they had to take responsibility for each other. We were in some treacherous territory on purpose and did some very steep climbs and uh, in dangerous terrain. And they had to look out for each other. So, and, and these teenagers came to the course so self-centered with all their, like, makeup and junk like that and stuff like that and they completely transformed over the time of this course and so the the 16 year old juvenile delinquent saw that the mit professor was struggling i mean this was hard terrain and he took the professor's pack on top of his own pack and he loved the way it made him feel to help. Instead of destroying property, he got high on helping the other eight students, especially the professor. He got so high 
And he, he told us all this when we debriefed at the end. We had a long half-day session talking about what we learned and stuff. And it made him feel like he had he was worth something. Hmm. Made him feel like he had a purpose. And at the end of the course, he, he wanted to um, do something that would help society, especially um, young people. He wanted to be a force for good. And so the, the, the professor and the juvenile delinquent, they collaborated. So the professor shared his wisdom with this young man, and this young man helped the professor survive this very rigorous course and was always looking at, at, after his back, making sure he was okay. And, and, and anyway, he became the most loved person on the whole course. And <laughs> he wanted more of that. And to get more, that meant he was going to devote his life to helping others. And that's just one story. There's story after story. I had parents call me up and say, what did you do to my son? And I said, what do you mean? said, he's a different guy. He's always asking how he can help and uh, what he can do. And he, he used to be allergic to helping around the house and, and stuff like that. And I got letters saying, you know, how their daughter had so transformed. So I thought, this is really for me. Then, then, um, then the head of the uh, master's program, Joel Noel, said, I'd like you to take an EMT course because we, you need to know this um, medical stuff because you're going, we're going so deep into the wilderness, you need to know what to do if somebody gets hurt. So I took the EMT course, which is 156 hours, and I just loved every minute of it especially following around doctors in the emergency room mm -hmm. and where they explained everything and and then I got to talk to the patients and I just thought oh my god I love this and then I thought maybe I am supposed to be a doctor and maybe I am smart enough it's funny people have these stupid ideas about themselves that aren't based on reality and um and to think that I thought I wasn't smart enough. Well, so I thought, I'm going to take pre-med courses. And, and, and it turned out that they were so easy for me. It, I, you know, and, and the students were not that smart. And these were our future doctors. And I thought, oh, my God. And I held back because I thought I wasn't smart enough. I mean, these were people who just knew how to memorize they no critical thinking, mm -hmm. no no asking. Is this really true? How do we know this? It's just memorizing and spitting back. And I was really good at memorizing. I when I lived in England, when I was six years old in the first grade, I memorized a long poem. I didn't even know what it meant, but I memorized the whole thing. So I thought, if this is all it takes is to be memorize data and spit it back out, Jesus and um. But it was shocking because they did not teach critical thinking. Hmm. And even when I made it to, I got my whole expenses paid 
for medical school. I told him I could not go to medical school because I had no money. I was in the Peace Corps. And the advisor said, you know, maybe you shouldn't even apply because you have no money and you, other, you're going to get huge loans and you're a woman. And I said, what does that being a woman have to do with it? He said, well, it's harder to get in in those days. And you're too old. At too old, uh, 29, and he said, yeah, you'll be 31 or two when you get in. I said, that's old? And he said, yeah, you know, most people go straight straight from um, college to med school. They, they don't take 10 years, you know, so that might be a point against you. I thought, jeez, and what else is against me? And he said, well, um, your liberal arts background. <laughs> And so anyway, when Stanford asked me for an interview, I brought the letter and showed it to him. And I said, never underestimate when somebody has a vision, don't try to stop them. And he apologized. <laughs> and I ended up g going to um, University of Colorado, though, because they said they would cover all my expenses and pay, pay for everything. And I didn't have to... Um, retake the MCATs, the medical uh, achievement tests. And I took them early because of this age thing, because I started freaking out, I'm too old. N now you can get in when you're 45, or, you know, I helped a guy get in when he was 47, wow. but this was a long time ago. And um, so they said, we'll take you right now, just as you are, just, uh, and, uh, but anyway, what I noticed in medical school is there's no critical thinking. They did not teach you to say, does that make sense? And so we, we learned some things that I knew weren't right. And I knew they had some other agenda. And, um, and so, but then I, 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 I was not encouraged to speak up. In fact, it was condemned. I had to swallow the party line. So I had to learn to live with Cognitive dissonance, and meaning when you know something is not that way, but you say it's that way, but you know that's not right. But so I, I learned to just go along with it. And, um, but then at some point, <clears throat> after practicing mainstream medicine for 10 years, I thought, this, this is not what I spent my life looking for, just being a pill dispenser. In fact, the Navajo word for white doctor is a zeshini, which means he who gives out pills. And I thought, I didn't search for just to be a pill dispenser and to order a million tests and to, to not really have a relationship with the patient, just treat them like, you know, 15 minutes when they have this very serious problem and you've got 15 minutes and so you just give them a bunch of pills. You have a headache here, here you have asthma here. Instead of like, why do I have headaches? And why do I have asthma? And what can I do about it besides taking pills? And so anyway, um, like the grandmother predicted, I had a disaster, like just exactly like what I'd written down in my diary. She said I would have a life ch uh, threatening challenges. And, and I had two of them. And, but they all turned out to be a blessing, these supposedly nightmare experiences. And one was getting injured by chemicals in the workplace. 
And so I became for a while chemically sensitive and started practicing medicine out of my home and left mainstream medicine. And so this injury was the best thing that could have happened to me because even though it was a nightmare and left me very damaged, but I rehabilitated from it, it, it was the portal to getting out of mainstream medicine and practicing medicine in a way that was totally in alignment with my intellect, my heart, my soul, and what I knew was right. And, and um, I, I've done that since 1993. I'm 73. I have no interest in retiring. I'm, I, I'm, what I'm doing is so meaningful and, and so rewarding that it was worth searching 10 years looking for um, what I'm really here on this planet to do. I love my medical practice and I'm nicknamed the health detective. People, I'm not taking new patients now because I, I, I've had, for five years I've been not taking new patients because I'm overwhelmed. I have 1,200 patients. And, but they came from all over the United States, even Europe, because they couldn't find a doctor who would help them figure out why they felt terrible all the time. They just got pills, antidepressants, antipsychotics, sleeping pills. I mean, for God's sakes, Ritalin, amphetamines. I, I mean, that's no way to treat people who don't feel good. And so, anyway, I just love what I'm doing. I love make, helping people feel better. I love empowering people, keeping them out of the emergency room, keeping them from 10 billion scans that they don't need, keeping them from all these pills that just hurt them, and, and teaching them about how to live a healthy lifestyle. It's incredibly rewarding. Mm. And I'm putting it all what I learned on that journey into there. I treat my patients with total love and compassion. I treat my patients as though they're from my own family, just the way I treated the Navajo children. And they so respond to it that when I first started practicing like that and learning environmental medicine and nutritional medicine and all, all this stuff that you never learn in med school, the really, some of the really important lifestyle stuff that makes a gigantic difference. Um, so, but while I was learning that, I, I, I remember one of my first patients, she came in to my, my clinic became, was in my home because I, I had, become so sensitive at that time and um and after an hour she said oh are we done how much do i owe you and i said we were in the living room at that point i hadn't had my separate clinic yet i said you don't owe me anything i didn't or didn't do anything and she said wow you don't really understand something she said, you helped me so much just by listening to me with total respect. I'm going to pay you. 
And she was my first patient out of mainstream medicine. She paid me $100. That was her choice. And so that, that's how the, my practice began. <laughs> and, and then as I learned more and more, word of mouth, I never advertised. And pretty soon I had more patients that I could handle. And, and again, um, in the beginning, I didn't really have a huge amount to offer, but patients kept saying, you helped me so much. And, and, and I thought, what are they talking about? And it's the simple act of treating them with respect and listening to every word they say. It is, I realized, I finally got it, the patients convinced me that it has a healing aspect to it. So, do you have any questions, Gary? Yeah. Um, so, so, in your current practice, like like other than listening, so what are some of the other untraditional um, approaches that you use towards medicine that you find like to be really effective? Well, it all <clears throat> it starts with the diet. The American diet is actually atrocious, and Uh-oh. and and it's not really. I don't. It. I don't really put all the blame on people. I think the food industry has really manipulated our tastes and what we crave and what we're addicted to and stuff like that. So it that's where it always begins. Unless somebody, you know, obviously has a chemical exposure or something else, then we begin there. But if they just say, I feel bad all the time, or I'm tired all the time, or I'm anxious all the time, or I can't sleep all the time, we start with the diet and we do a radical overhaul. Now, what I do is customized per person. So I don't say say one size fits all. I don't tell everybody they should be a vegan. I don't tell everybody they should be a vegetarian. I don't tell everybody they should eat meat. Uh, It's very customized, but there are certain principles that apply to everyone, like Eat organic if you can afford it because the food is so polluted with pesticides that wreck your body and make you at risk for cancer, disrupt your gut, cause irritable bowel disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, all sorts of autoimmune problems. The list of what glyphosate in Roundup does is huge. And so, and so eating organic is a place to start that applies to everybody who can afford it. And an, another principle that applies to everybody is um, to, the less processed food, the better. Meaning stay away from foods that have been to a factory, if you can, or at least cut way back, including power bars and all that stuff. Number three <clears throat> is drink filtered water. Our water is totally contaminated. Drink filtered water. Find a good filter. Like I, I use a reverse osmosis over the counter that I can just plug in. It's really easy. Um, another principle is don't cook with vegetable oils. They're they're so damaged from processing that they're they're even damaged before you open the bottle. That corn, soy, canola, safflower, some flour, all of them are oxidized and cause damage. And you need to eat the good fats 
and stay away from the bad fats. The bad fats cause a lot of harm, like fried food, hydrogenated, and those processed oils that are so damaged. And the good fats are terribly important, like the nuts and seeds, the nut butters, the homemade nut milks, the avocados, olives, olive oil, uh, Alaska salmon. It's one of the few fish I still recommend. Most fish is completely out. It's so polluted. And principle that applies to most people is a heavy vegetable diet. Um, so those are the basic principles. And then after that, it needs to be customized. Do we take out gluten? Do we take out dairy? Do we take out peanuts? Do we take out soy? Do, do we take out um, uh, corn? So that has to be individualized. And after we get the diet straightened out, God, so many problems solve themselves that it makes my life so much easier fixing the rest of the problem. They come, many of my patients would come in with a problem list that were about 20 things on the problem list, at least. And they were all similar, tired, anxious, depressed, um, can't sleep, um, craving, craving bad food, uh, gaining weight, um, uh, and so forth. And um, yeah, and then all the other problems, the rashes and so forth, the yeast, constant yeast problems and headaches and so forth. But so you take care of the diet and you find the diet that works the best and is cleanest, safest, healthiest, least processed, get rid of sugar, get rid of the simple carbs that turn to sugar immediately. And all those things, the rashes, the yeast, they just disappear. And, and the problem list gets really tiny, really little. And then for, for what's left, you say, are you, you know, are exposed to mold? Have you had your house tested for mold? Has there been water damage there? Um, uh, do you have Lyme disease? Should we check for Lyme disease? That can cause all sorts of chronic problems. Um, and um, what else? Um, uh, lifestyle. Are you? Are you? And then there's the spiritual stuff. Are you holding on to anger and resentment? Are you living in chronic fear all the time? So we address the whole person, but we always start with what you put in your mouth. Uh, uh, again, unless the house is burning down or you have a big mold problem, then we start there. Are you living in near agriculture where they aerial spray pesticides? Have you sprayed your house for pesticides? Um, have you moved into a brand new house without gassing chemicals? Do you use fabric softener in your clothes, which can cause cancer? It's got benzene in it, which is carcinogenic. People are using stuff that is so harmful to them and using like detergents that have all sorts of nasty chemicals. They clean their home with nasty chemicals that outgas. And they're so toxic, they don't even realize that these things are toxic because they, they, they are like, it's like a smoker. It's, it's, it's other people smoke doesn't bother them. But have you ever seen smokers who give up smoking for a year and they can't bear the smell of smoke because their body is cleaned out 
So then you get a normal reaction to what's bad and what's good. It's like most people have the batteries taken out of their smoke alarm. So they don't know when they're in danger because they're so toxic. Mm -hmm. And when you clean them out, it's like putting the batteries back in the smoke alarm. And so they know exactly when they go out to eat and they eat pizza, they feel like shit the next day. They know. They know because they're cleaned out. And so my program includes sauna also and supplements and regular exercise outside. It includes a certain amount of sun every day, sun exposure, um, and so forth. Do, do, am I, are you getting the picture, Gary? Yeah, I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> I don't cook. All I seem to eat is like pizza and Chinese food. Well, the thing is, it, it has consequences down the road. And some of the consequences... If you have your batteries out of your smoke alarm, you, you won't notice anything wrong with that. You won't notice anything wrong until one day something will happen and you'll wonder why. I, I've had wives bring in their husbands and, and the wife will say in total distress, my husband was never sick a day in his life. He never complained about anything and now he has cancer throughout his whole body. I don't understand it. That's because the batteries were out of his smoke alarm. He didn't know when he was around toxic chemicals. He worked with this guy I'm thinking of, worked with toxic chemicals, but he didn't, he didn't realize they were harming him because he was so toxic already. And, and so, you know, you're young, so you can change all of this by finding like a, a coach, a nutritional coach or a health coach who really knows what they're talking about. Most doctors are deeply ignorant about nutrition. I mean, deeply ignorant and give mm -hmm. bad advice and ask me how much I, I learned in med school about nutrition. Two oh. hours, two <laughs> hours, two hours. And this, this should be like, like a huge part of the curriculum. But it's not because it's all pharmaceutical driven. It's and and so we we don't learn things. We didn't learn things like that. All right. Wow. I I, I don't know. I guess I gotta change the way I eat. <laughs> well, it's it's not easy. But this is what makes people change when they feel so bad. I don't want to feel bad. Though. I want to skip that part. I, I know that that's that's enlightened. That's when you can skip the suffering and make the change without having to hit bottom. That's very enlightened. Most people are so addicted to the way they eat and what they eat. It takes a disaster for them to change their lifestyle, mm -hmm. a huge disaster. But there are some people who can do it without a disaster because they, they have the vision, they have the understanding of where their diet will eventually lead. Hmm. And so may that be your case. May you bypass a catastrophe and improve your diet without having to suffer first. Interesting. I'll have to start doing my food shopping at the Amish market. Yeah, Amish. Good. Good because they, they have 
all their food is natural and they don't overcharge for it. <laughs> okay, good, good. Stick to the Amish. Good. They, they, they have some customs that are very healthy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all, that's why I always like when I do eat, used to eat like steaks and stuff, I always wanted to get it from them because. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's like steroid free and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That you have access to some really good food. That's good. How is rice? Is rice healthy? Um, it, rice is a starch. Let me explain the difference between a starch, which is means the same thing as complex carbohydrate, and a simple carbohydrate. Okay, let's take brown rice. That's a starch. It's never been fiddled with or anything. It's You're just eating it as it grows, which is the best. Mm -hmm. Let's say you send that rice to a factory and you turn it into rice pasta. Then it's a simple carb, which turns to sugar immediately, which does not help your health. So if you have to choose between this and this, always choose to eat things the way they grow and not after they've been to a factory. So it's okay to eat brown rice. Yeah. I know how to use a rice cooker, so I'm on my way. Oh, you have a rice cooker? Yeah. It's the only thing I have. (laughs) That's cool. So so now here's the thing. Uh, so there's always exceptions. Brown rice is the healthiest. However, there's some people whose guts are so sensitive, they can't eat brown rice. They have to eat white rice. You see? So that's why everything has to be customized to the individual. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Wow. Really interesting. Um, so, so do you have a better six like a higher um recovery rate than a normal doctor in a hospital oh yes yes but i i don't want to lose my license so i can't tell you (laughs) cvid because um i have a different approach and i i wrote a blog about the protocol but there's some things i wasn't allowed to write about so if people want to find the blog post that uh, they might find really useful, even though I, I wasn't, I couldn't tell everything that I use because, uh, I, I, it would be considered quote misinformation. So my blog site is musings with an S musings, memoir and medicine.com. And it's a mishmash of excerpts from my memoirs and my travels, healthy recipes, by the way, that you might like. But the main reason why I started to blog is a public service to do medical posts about information that people can't find easily. And so it's not just spouting the party line. I am a critical thinker. And so I, so it might be stuff that people haven't heard before, a different approach. And so what they do on the blog site, they click under medicine and then all the medical posts will appear. If they want the, there's one called flu prevention and treatment and it it's, it's, um, applies to any upper respiratory virus, <clears throat> including the one that's going on now. And so in the search bar on the blog site, if you just put FLU flu, that blog Post will appear and that blog post has gone around the world. It's been sent to South America, to Europe, and 
it's just a guide. But again, I, I could only say so much and then I had to stop. Mm-hmm. But, but what I did say might be useful to people. Is there any movement out there or any other medical professions or people like you that are um, trying to um, expand the current medical um, training that people receive to include some more of these dietary or, or just the diagnostic method that you seem to use is even different? Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> it's expanding rapidly. When, when I first started in 1993 on my own, I felt so alone. It was, it was really hard to find doctors who practiced like me. I called it alternative medicine because I, I didn't know what else to call it. And now it's gone, through, it's gone through different phases, holistic medicine, integrative medicine, and now the big thing is functional medicine. And that is the closest to the way I practice. And um, because they do stress nutrients, nutrition, and all that stuff, it's called functional medicine. So people can look for functional medicine doctors, and then they get more an enlightened, more enlightened approach to uh, less drug-oriented approach to their ailments. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, so before we wrap it up. Can you give out your websites in the name of your book again? Yeah. Gary, my book is called Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People. And it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It was published by a company called Inner Traditions. And my my blog site is Musings memoir and medicine all one word dot com and then my other website which has been inactive for five years because i'm not taking new patients but you can still learn a lot from there but it's not active so don't try and reach me through that website because again it's not kept up but you might find it really interesting it's erica elliot two l's and two t's erica elliot md.com awesome I'll put the links to your websites, to your blog, and to your book, all in the, all in the notes of this episode, so my listeners can uh, find you and and learn more about your journey and you know and how it is uh, you know kind of made you a sort of a pioneer in changing um, modern medicine. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you Gary. Yeah. Uh, this is fantastic. Thank you for being on and taking the time to talk to me today. I really enjoyed. Uh, listening to your story. I learned a lot. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. And just um, hang on for one moment. I just have to play the outro. Thank you.
www.thepeopletonly.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need.